Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Hey, good morning, you guys. Welcome to Hope Church. If you're here in the building with us or out on the patio or if you're watching at home, welcome, welcome. We're going to be, today we're going to be wrapping up our series uh, that we've been in called Second Chances. So my goal today is to take all of the threads of all the stories that we've heard over the last few weeks and tie them all up in a nice, neat little bow. We'll see if it happens. We'll see. Um, that's my goal. I wanted to tell you a story to start off with, though, um, um, just so we're all on the same page when we say second chances of, about what we mean by that. So um, when my older sister was in high school, you might remember if you were here last week, I told a story about how she got this uh, disposable camera, right? And, um, well, the same week that she went to camp, um, right before that, so she was a cheerleader in high school, and as part of the cheerleading squad, they did these little fundraiser things. And I don't know if you remember, this used to be a thing. I, I don't see this happening anymore, but this used to be a thing where in high school, if you wanted to raise funds, they would give the kids like a box of candy bars to sell door to door. Remember this? I, maybe this is just unsafe now. I don't, know, I don't know why they don't do it anymore. But So she brought home a cardboard box full of 40 chocolate candy bars. And she brought it home, and she left it under her bed, and then went off to camp for a week. Now, that's not fair to me. You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> The, the deck was stacked against me here. First of all, when, when my older sister wasn't home, I had free reign of her room. I mean, I would go in there to just get away from the hustle and bustle of regular life and just have some me time, you know, 10-year-old me time. And I happened to glance down. I looked under her bed, as I often did, and uh, I saw this cardboard box that wasn't there before. And I, I pulled the box out, you know, and I, I opened up the box, and I looked in, and I saw 40 chocolate candy bars. 40. It's amazing how um, it's amazing how the mind will rationalize certain actions in a moment, right? When you really want something, you know. And I and I thought, you know, 40 candy bars will look to my sister a lot like 39 candy bars. So I took a candy bar and I, I went outside and I ate it. I was back within the hour. I was back in that bedroom, and I slid the box open, and I looked, and I thought to myself a very similar thought, which is, you know what looks a lot like 40 candy bars? 38 candy bars. And this went on throughout the week. When I got down to 12 candy bars, at that point, you know, when you're so deep into your sin, there comes a point, there comes a point where you say to yourself, at this point, it no longer matters, Right? It's beyond justification. It's just whatever the consequence is, it will be the same at 13 candy bars as it is at 12 candy bars, right? When she came home, I believe there was five left. Yeah, yeah. That's right. No money in the box. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. is When we say second chances, we don't mean that there's, in life, that there's do, there was no coming back from that moment. There's no do-overs, you know? There's rarely do-overs. I couldn't go back and not eat the candy bars. What we mean is that God is telling redemptive stories through our circumstances. And we're going we're gonna to look at a redemptive story today. Um, uh, last week I talked about Jacob. 
And I wanted to, um, I wanted to sew up his story with a little epilogue about what happened to Jacob. Um, you know, when Jacob, I remember I told you he had, these, he had wives, he had, he had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Remember that? Well, when he was older, when he was an old man, in fact, uh, one of his sons, Joseph, had become the viceroy in Egypt, which worked out really good for their family because a huge famine came upon the land. Everybody was starving. Nobody had food. And Jacob was able to lead his, his entire family, his sons, their wives, their children, about 70 people into Egypt, and they sheltered there. Jacob ended up living and then dying there, actually. So they entered Egypt as a family of 70. 400 years later, Moses and Joshua would lead that same family back out of Egypt and out of slavery, and at this point, that family numbered about a million people. And when they left Egypt, they went back to the land of Jacob. And they, they settled in, so you know where Jerusalem is in Israel, so they settled a little north of there and a little south of there, and they occupied those, those lands. You remember one of Jacob's sons was named Judah, right, Judah? The tribe of Judah at that point, numbering in the tens of thousands, settled just north of where Jerusalem is now. Um, and a part of that tribe was, was um, the descendants of Rahab, the mother of Boaz, King David's descendants. You remember when um, we spoke about Rahab? Tim talked about Rahab's second chance story a few weeks ago. And, and the tribe of Joseph and his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, they, they settled just south of Jerusalem there in the land where Jacob had lived. Now, a few hundred years after these, this family had returned to their, their promised land, as they called it, the Assyrians came. The Assyrians were a warring nation, powerful army, and they took all of these tribes of Israel, they took these families and they took them into captivity. They conquered their land and they took them into captivity. They left some behind, but most of them they took away. But Assyria did something else. They sent colonists to the land that they had conquered. So they removed most of the people and then they sent their own people as colonists to set up their own kind of beachhead of culture and, and community and cities there in order to keep the land. And the people that remained, the Hebrew people that had remained, they intermingled with these Assyrians, these colonists. And the people group that were the descendants from that group were called the Samaritans. You might be familiar with the Samaritans if you've read the New Testament. Now, when the Hebrews came back out of captivity, they found this people group that never existed before, the Samaritans living in their land. And enmity grew between them, these two groups. They grew to hate each other. So slowly, the Jewish people who had been oppressed became the oppressors. Does this sound familiar? This is, this is one of the rhythms of human history. The people historically oppressed, and then slowly they de develop the same traits as their oppressors, and they become the oppressor. You know, I, I've been watching the news the last couple weeks, and heavy on my heart is the, you know, watching the fall of Afghanistan, seeing the Taliban come in, and um, you know, this oppressive regime. And, and restore their oppressive order to a, a, a beautiful uh, country. Um, but this is actually not surprising when you think about it. This, this nation has been, you know, that same people group that the Taliban has descended from has been uh, conquered and oppressed by the Assyrians, same ones that, are, that, that took uh, Israel, the Persians, uh, the Macedonians under Alexander the uh, not-so-great, uh, you know, the British Empire, right, the Soviets, so, of course, not surprisingly, a historically oppressed people 
who have known nothing else but subjugation, when given the opportunity, become the oppressors. This is the rhythm of human history. Well, I want to talk about another rhythm to human history. It's one that's found in the scriptures. There's, you know, this book is actually a collection of 66 books. And if you read these things, this was written over the course of over 1,500 years. And, and as you read these stories, you begin to see patterns and rhythms and echoes and overarching themes. Even though these authors are separated by time and distance and culture, they didn't know each other, but they were writing about some of the same things. And you begin to see these patterns. I want to talk about one of these patterns today. In the beginning of this collection of books is a book called Genesis. That's where we read about the story of Jacob. And at the very beginning of Genesis is a written down oral tradition. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And in the beginning, in the beginning, was a man and a woman. And God placed them in a garden by a source of life. Right? And the man and the woman, they symbolize God's value of partnership. And the source of life symbolized their need for God to sustain them. And through this couple, God promised to bring about the flourishing of all the other humans down through their lineage. And we move forward in time, and we see Jacob come along. And there's a man and a woman by a well, a source of life, right? And he seeks from her partnership, and God promises to sustain them and bring about a plan for redemption for other humans through their lineage. And then we come to the story of Jesus, found in the Gospel of John. And Jesus comes to a well, and there's a woman. And he has a conversation. This is Jacob's well, by the way, just coincidentally. And in that conversation, there's a promise that God has a plan for redemption and restoration for the source of of God's life in the midst of the desert of sin, right? And then if you skip to the back of this collection of books, there's a, there's a book called Revelation. If you're like me, you don't, you don't look at that one too much because it's a little scary. No, it's actually, it's really good. It's really good. But if you, if you look at this book, this is, this is also John writing here. And you know what he says? He says, at the end, when the story of humanity ends, there's a new beginning, you know that? There's a new beginning coming. And there's a, there's a woman, a bride. He calls it the church. That's us. And there's a, there's a man, a groom. His name is Jesus. And there's an internal source of life. You see the, the rhythm, the pattern to history, right? We're going we're gonna to focus today <clears throat> on the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. So, of course, my, my message today is entitled, Well, Well, Well. That, you know what? That's a dad joke. I'm sorry. That's, that, was just for my, that was just for my kids. You, just, you had to be in the room for that. That was, that was actually just for my kids. All right, so I want to tell you a story, and I want to make two observations about it. That's, that's what I did last week. I just told you a story, and I want to make two observations, okay? So this is the story of, of um, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, Okay? So this takes place in John chapter 4, all right? So if you want to turn in your Bibles or fire up your Bible app, you can look at John chapter 4, all right? He was traveling through the country with his friends, the disciples, and he told them to go into town, and he, uh, it says he'd gone through Samaria, and he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. This is actually right where Jacob uh, and his family used to live. 
It says, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. So this is the well that he met Rachel. Right? And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, so it was the middle of the day. John points that out because it's important. It'll be important in a minute. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His, di his disciples had gone into town to buy food, so he, he was alone. It was just him and it was her. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now in parentheses, John adds, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, this is an understatement. This is actually an English translation of a Greek phrase Somewhere along the way, they translated into English as Jews do not associate with Samaritans because we thought we, they thought we wouldn't understand the reference if they translated it literally. Here's how it translates literally from the Greek. Greeks do not eat on dishes that have been used by Samaritans. It's kind of an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? No one's eating dinner here. What does that mean? <clears throat> My dad, in 1968, was drafted into the Army and was sent to Augusta, Georgia, for basic training uh, at Fort Gordon. And after he'd been there some time, him, he, he found a uh, fellowship with, with three other guys that were actually from the Santa Cruz Watsonville area, just by coincidence, they found each other and they were hanging out. And so they got leave on the weekend and decided to go into town, into Augusta, and get something to eat. And they went to a diner and they, they walked in, they sat down at a table and they sat there, and sat there, and they sat there, and nobody came to take their order. Eventually, they got up, and they left, and they went back to base. Can anyone take a guess why no one took their order? Yeah, one of, one of his friends was black. 1968, Augusta, Georgia. You know, I kind of think this phrase, Jews do not eat on dishes that have been used by Samaritans, would be, kind of similar to the sentiment of the owner of that diner if it had been expressed out loud, we don't serve their kind here. You understand, the, you understand the, the, the obstacle that Jesus is having to step over in this moment. So there's a, there's a gender obstacle because of their patriarchal culture. There's a, there's a racial obstacle. Centuries of hate between these two peoples. And John wants us to know it because it's important. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, he says. Now, this is the first time that Jesus introduces this, this radical concept that he himself is the source by which we are to be sustained. Do you find it curious that the men he called his disciples, these people that are supposed to uh, proliferate the, the message of Jesus, and, and, and establish the church of God. He sends them away and then introduces this radical concept when they're not there. And who does he do it to? A woman scorned by her own culture, rejected by his in the middle of the day. Isn't that interesting? Does that speak to you about the values of who Jesus is? It does for me. Sir, she responds, have you nothing to draw with? The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? He doesn't have a bucket, is what she's saying. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, 
as did also his sons and livestock. Do you hear, do you hear what she said? Our father Jacob? I think this is an appeal to the deep racial division and pain felt by the Samaritans. Sir, do you understand that he's our father? We come from the same lineage, sir. Both of our groups trace our lineage back to the same man, and yet your people have rejected my people. She's kind of drawing a line, saying, you're on this side and I'm on this side. Whatever this thing is you're offering, it cannot cross that divide. The story of human beings living outside of God's model for human relationship is one of oppressor and oppressed. It's this cycle, oppressor and oppressed. Right? And our own story, even in this country, I mean, if you think about where, where we came from, you know, you know, centuries before, white Protestants leaving oppression behind in continental Europe, looking for freedom, landed on this shore, on these shores, and established in the new world a new thing. And they began to prosper, and they began to flourish. And then upon encountering technologically inferior people of color with different beliefs, they became the oppressor. You see this, this kind of back and forth, this pattern of human history. Jesus is about to introduce into the story of humanity a new element that changes the equation forever. No longer do people have to identify as oppressor or oppressed. In fact, he's changing the game completely. Here's what he says. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'm not understating it when I say this, the, the, the linchpin of human history rests on moments just like this. This is how important this conversation is. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. So she's still thinking practical. Like, I can't help but read a little sarcasm into it. Like, oh, sure, okay, the, yeah, water where you never get thirsty again. Sell me this product, sir, and I won't have to come back to this well ever again. And he tells her, why don't you go call your husband and come back? And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. In fact, the man you now have is not your husband. The man she was with, most likely she was technically married to, but he's, he's pointing out the obvious, which is that marriage is a sham, uh, as are the last four. He says, what you have said is quite true. So what Jesus does in his gentle but insistent way is he's pulling apart the facade. This is a very important moment. He's introducing an eternal concept, and in order for her to accept it, the facade has to be torn down, right? And she said, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, so here, she changes the subject. As, you know, when things get uncomfortable, a good thing to do is you, you change the subject, right? Change the subject. It's, this, is, this got really personal really fast. You seem to know things about me that you shouldn't know. So she starts talking about mountains and temples. Of course, that's what I would do. She says, I can see you're a prophet. Anyway, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Now, the mountain she's talking about, Mount Gerizim, is, would, is actually, I mean, it's like right there. The, if, you, if you go to Israel, there's the well, and then the mountain is like 
right there. So she says, we worship on this mountain, and they do. They built, the Samaritans had built a temple. That was what caused so much division is, remember, the Hebrews got pulled into captivity by the Assyrians. When they came back, what did they find? The, the, the Samaritans had built their own temple up on this mountain, whereas the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And they were not happy about that. They felt like this was just a complete affront to the whole thing. So he, she says, our ancestors worship on this mountain. You Jews claim that you, your place of worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, he says, woman. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so he's, he's changing the game, okay? It's not about your opinion, our opinion, something else. There's a transcendent truth here. The, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship, with the, worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of the worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. Now the woman tries one more dodge, okay? She tries one more deflection. She says, I, and I think this is probably because this is complicated, right? It's, it, and it, it's, uh, it has deep repercussions. You know, when, you, when you're presented with information that causes you to have to do self-examination and maybe change the way you think about things that you've thought about for a long time, how often do you change your mind about things? How often do you change your mind? I, I don't mean like, you know, I, I liked that restaurant, now I don't like them because I got sick there. It, I'm talking about deep, fundamental things. How often do you change your mind? Not very often, right? What he's proposing is a radical shift in the way she has always thought about her life, about religion, about culture. So, of course, she deflects. She says, I know that Messiah, because <clears throat> both the Samaritans and the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. In other words, what you're saying is too complicated and has too, uh, too profound an implication for my own life. I, instead of dealing with this right now, I'm going to wait for someone to come and explain it to me. And then Jesus plays his trump card. Right? <clears throat> Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is really profound because <clears throat> this is the first time he says it. He says it out loud. That's me. I'm the Messiah. And he says it to a woman who had been broken and shunned and rejected. And the result is exactly what he hoped for. She runs into town. I'm going to paraphrase the rest of the story. She runs into town, and she tells everyone who will listen, there's a man, and he knows things about me he couldn't possibly know. Come and see, she says. And they do. And Jesus records, and his friends, they stay there for two more days, and they preach the gospel, and, and the first Jesus followers recorded are in this community of Samaritans, Right? So I want to leave you with these two observations, okay? I want to make these two observations. The first is that God 
offers us a redemptive story. He offers us a redemptive story. And I think many of us would believe that. But here's the hard part. It's not so that we can fix ourselves, but so that he can transform us from the inside out. Life has rhythms to it, doesn't it? We've seen some of these. We've seen some of these patterns and rhythms, and not, not just in history, but it, just in our own short lifespan. You see the same kinds of things circle back around. And when you see, you know, so we talked last week about Jacob and how he was in, in, in an impossible situation, and he prays, oh, God, you know, here's what I'll do if you get me out of it, and, you know, those rescue kind of prayers, right? We've all prayed them. Save me from these circumstances. And I, I suggested last week that perhaps praying something different in that moment. Change me. Change me, not the world. Our, our, our fleshly pattern is to want to pray something like, you know, change the things around me, right? But, but what he wants to do, what he wants to do is not watch us fix ourselves, but to use that opportunity to allow him to surrender, us surrender, and allow him to fix us from the inside out. So uh, my wife and I have a small business, and one of the things that we sell is kitchen cabinets there. And, and a conversation I have, so I go out to people's houses and I'll measure, you know, for cabinets. And a, a conversation I've had many, many times is, you know, where I'm measuring these cabinets and someone will say, hey, what would it be if I just bought, just bought new doors for the faces of the cabinets, right? I just, if I just put, a, just put a face on this thing, you know, just re, refaced this thing, you know, first of all, that's... That's not really a thing, but anyway, you know, what if, what if I just, you know, just put a veneer over this thing? And I always have to have this kind of like awkward conversation, like, you know, the lipstick on a pig conversation, you know what I mean? Like, like, like lady, I've looked inside your cabinets, like there's nothing worth saving here. Like, you know, the hinges are falling off, it's particle board, they're all swollen and there's water damage, you know, and they're still sticky from 20 years of broken, that broken jar of jelly you never cleaned up, you know, it's like, you know, what would it be if I just, you know, I just put some new doors on here, you know. I think that's our tendency in life is, you know, you see these redemptive rhythm, you see this opportunity come up in life and you think, well, what if I just put some, some new doors on this thing, you know. I can, I can get another 10 miles down the road, you know, if I just did that. That's not, what, that's not what's on offer here. The kind of change that Jesus wants to make is deep. It's foundational inside of us. Yesterday I took, uh, I took my three kids and the Bennett kids, um, Ruby and uh, Kale came with us. And the, so me and five children, and I took them into uh, Nicene Marks. We went in the Vienna Woods entrance, uh, uh, a path I've taken many, many times, but we went deep in there. And at some point we made a turn that I'd never made before and we were on a path I'd never been on before. Technically I was lost, yes, with five children, technically. A former Boy Scout's not, never truly lost, but, but I was technically lost. And I was, I was there, and the, I was kind of like standing there tr trying to get my bearings, thinking about like, okay, you know, you know that moment when a man thinks about, you know, has to think about the, the gravity of his situation and all the people he didn't ask for directions when he saw them on the trail? And, <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about it, and this French couple walks up. I know they were French because they're accent. I didn't, I didn't just assume they were French. They walk up, and it's, you know, they, start, they go, excuse me, um, uh, do you know where we are? And I said, definitely not. <laughs> and, and, and she goes, oh. And she kind of looks, you know, I have five kids with me, and she goes, 
She goes, do you know the way out? I said, no. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because they were lost, too. It's, the conversation started with her thinking I could help them and ended up being their concern for me, you know? And she goes, she goes, are you lost? And I said, yeah, isn't it great? And then she just kind of backed away with their little dog, you know, under their arm. <clears throat> I think sometimes we have to get to a place where we can acknowledge how fundamentally lost we are before Jesus can do the work that he really wants to do. You know, he, his invitation is to, for us to move with him in these rhythms of redemption. But if we're always just trying to put new doors on the thing, nothing ever really gets accomplished. My second uh, observation is this, is that his plan to transform our life is much bigger than merely changing our present circumstance. It's bigger than that. If, if all of your prayers are, God, please change things to make them better for me, I, I think you're praying to too small a God. His plan is to change us deep inside, not just rescue us from our crummy circumstance. I think one of the problems of repetitiously praying those kinds of prayers and seeking God in that way is it, it's, it creates for you a kind of egocentric version of Christianity. And I think Western Christianity, I think to be blunt, is plagued by this kind of egocentric Christianity. Because, I mean, look at our lives. Look, look at us. I mean, we're not being oppressed by anyone, you know? I mean, we're, we're affluent. We have, uh, I mean, compared to many parts of the world, there, there's a third of the world, a third of the world will struggle to find clean drinking water today for their children. A third of the world, you know? I mean, and, and we get upset when they get our coffee order wrong at Starbucks, right? I mean, by comparison, I mean, think about that. Like, we have developed an egocentric version of Christianity which has us at the center. God, will you change things to make them better for me? Change the world to make it better for me, right? When Jesus offers himself radically as the source of living water, what he does is he shifts the center of the universe from I and you, me, to him. He makes it about him. Now, the reason he does that is not because he's the biggest egotist of all time. It's because in him are all of the perfect values of God. So when we make him the center, all of a sudden we care less about ourselves and more about others. Are others okay? We think about the poor and the widow and the lost and the broken. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.